You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. that you remain seated, but because of what we're reading this morning, I think it would be good for us to stand if you're able to do so. Wasn't good. All right. This morning we're going to read Hebrews chapter 5, verse. uh, we're going to actually start verse 9. We'll read through chapter 6, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 through chapter 6, verse 12. And being made perfect, he, that's Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who, having once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's word. Please be seated. God, open our ears and our hearts that we might hear what the Spirit says to the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Apostasy is the repudiation of the faith. It's when someone departs from the faith that they previously professed. 
We usually think of apostasy as being the repudiation of certain doctrines. So someone used to profess faith in the deity and salvific death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, but then later denies one or all of these truths. That's apostasy. But the scriptures also warn against moral apostasy, where someone may give lip service to Christ, but their life has utterly denied the reality of that profession. Here we might think of Titus 1.16, which speaks of those who profess to know God but deny him by their works. This would be the open, public, flaunting, and utter repudiation of the lordship of Christ and the authority of his word and the life of someone that still gives lip service to following Jesus. We might think here of the false teachers in Jude. Well, they claimed Christianity, but they indulged in open sexual immorality and urged their followers to do likewise. That too is apostasy, a repudiation of the truth. And friends, we live in a time of much apostasy. Many people who previously professed faith in Jesus have now repudiated their professions. This has happened among highly visible church leaders like Joshua Harris and Rob Bell, who 15 years ago were best-selling authors, pastoring evangelical megachurches. Neither of them claims to be a Christian anymore. But it happens in smaller churches too. I've known a number of pastors in this area who left the faith to chase false doctrine, sexual sin, or the approval of the world. Likewise, Brother Joe told me this week about a respected missionary that he knew who abandoned his family on the mission field to run away with a woman over there. And friends, this isn't just happening among people in the ministry, it's also happening in the pews. It's happening to people that we know and love, to friends and family members. How often have we seen kids who grew up in Christian homes and attended church fall away once they went off to college? seduced by false ideas or the false pleasures of sin. I've seen people fall away after enduring tragedy because they just couldn't accept that God might allow them to encounter such a thing in this life. In recent years, many have tried to deconstruct their faith, believing that the gospel needed to be rescued from truths that are deeply unpopular in our world today concerning gender, sexuality, or eternal punishment. And where does this quest for deconstruction usually end? With the abandonment of the faith. Friends, apostasy is common. It often happens where you don't expect it, and it's always tragic. But while there's much apostasy today, we are not the first generation of Christians confronted by this problem. Even in the first century, many who professed faith fell away. Because like Damas in 2 Timothy, they loved the things of this world. Or like the Galatians, they were seduced by false doctrine. Or for other Christians, like those who belong to the church that received the book of Hebrews, the issue was persecution. They seem to have been experiencing cultural pressure to turn away from the faith. And being afraid that this opposition might soon intensify, they thought, why should we endure this? And being a Christian is basically like being Jewish. Why should we keep insisting on Jesus and courting danger when Judaism is accepted in our society and there will be safe? And so people in that church chose 
to deliberately become less distinctively Christian and blend more into Judaism. And the author of Hebrews heard about this and grew concerned because he saw these people he loved were teetering on the edge of apostasy. And so he wrote the book of Hebrews to that church, urging its members not to forsake the faith, telling them that theologically it doesn't make any sense to leave Jesus for Judaism because Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. And because apostasy is something eternally catastrophic. It's evidence that someone never really belonged to Christ. And so the apostate remains dead in his sins and on the path to hell. So he says, don't become apostate. Now today we come to the central section of the book of Hebrews, where our author really digs down and identifies the heart of the problem among his readers. And he exhorts them to remain in the faith by giving one of the most famous and controversial passages of warning that we find in the whole Bible, which we'll see today in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12. Today we'll see four points. First, the real problem in the Hebrews church. Second, the solution. Third, a blistering warning. And fourth, an encouragement. We begin with our first point, the real problem in the Hebrews church. Hebrews 5 verse 11 says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. It's a strange start to this passage. What is our author talking about? Well, he's just made an argument showing that Jesus is better than the Jewish priesthood. And at the end of last week's passage, we read in Hebrews 5 verse 9 that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a deep truth that our author wants to explain. But before he does so, he realizes his audience is going to really struggle with what he has to say because his instruction about the priesthood of Jesus will be long and complex. We'll see that in chapter 7. But beyond the difficulty of the material, our author knows that his reader's primary problem is really this. Chapter 5, verse 11, you have become dull of hearing. The Hebrews' problem is not mental deficiency, it's moral deficiency. God's truth has become boring and uninteresting to them because they are spiritually lazy. They have no interest in hearing God's word or considering its demands or being changed by it. Friend, does that sound familiar? Do you come to church to learn God's word so that you can grow in obedience to Christ? When you hear the sermon, are you attentively listening? Is your Bible open? Are you looking at it? Is your heart open, willing to receive truth and examine yourself and change in line with what God says? Or are you sitting here thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard all this before. Let's get this over with so I can have lunch and watch some football. When you hear something you don't like, are you thinking, forget this. I'm not going to make that change. God's okay with what I'm doing. Friends, dullness of hearing is when you decide that it's better to tune out the sermon or get up and go sit in the bathroom for a while or close your eyes and sleep because you want to avoid dealing with God's Word. Friend, is this you? Are you dull of hearing? 
Has your mind become deadened to God's word? Has your heart become deadened and hardened to God's truth? That's what happened to the Hebrews. Chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. If the Hebrews had been new Christians, maybe this would be understandable. But they had been Christians for some time. And yet, despite that, they had remained spiritually immature. They had been professing faith long enough that they should have been able to teach others. Not meaning that they each should have been preachers, but after you've been a Christian for a while, you ought to be able to explain the truths of the faith to someone else. We should all have a handle on the basics of the gospel. That we are all sinful and separated from a holy God because of our disobedience. That if we die in our sins, we will go to hell forever. That God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserved. That Jesus is risen from the dead and ruling as Lord. And that we need to repentantly believe in Him because He is the only way to salvation. Each of us who's been in the faith for any amount of time seriously should be able to know these things and talk about them to others. But even though the Hebrews have been in the faith for a while... Even though they should have been teaching others, they needed to be taught the basics once again. Why? Verse 12, he says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. These folks should have been spiritually mature, but instead our author tells them, you're spiritual babies. You can't handle solid food, meaning hard doctrine, like the doctrine of Jesus' priesthood he wants to teach them, because they're immature. Why? Well, because they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They don't know God's word. And so instead of being able to grasp deeper truths, they're stuck on milk the most basic doctrinal ideas, which they didn't understand particularly well, and they were unable to apply what they knew to their lives. That is spiritual immaturity. So what then is spiritual maturity? Well, our author says it's having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Spiritual maturity means that you can consistently and accurately recognize good and evil because you have been formed and trained by God's Word. And so spiritual maturity is ultimately about our understanding of the Scripture. If we don't understand it, and if we can't apply it to our lives accurately, we are spiritual babies. But if we dedicate ourselves to studying it, then we will learn how to consistently and accurately distinguish good from evil and live in line with those distinctions. So maturity is all about the centrality of God's word in your life. Now this corrects some false ideas about spiritual maturity that we may have. The world associates wisdom with age. That is not reliably true in the spiritual domain. Some of the most disastrous spiritual decisions I've ever seen were made by old men. Similarly, wisdom is not a result of simply professing Christ for a long time. I've known people who sat in church for decades remaining spiritually oblivious because they never personally dug into the scriptures with any diligence. At the same time, I've seen 
fairly young believers with a really deep grasp of the things of God because they have attended to it with zealousness. Friends, I also want to be careful to say that spiritual maturity is not determined by somebody's ability to perform miracles or by their claim that they have an inside track with God and are an anointed teacher or that they can see things in the Bible nobody's ever seen before. Honestly, the people that make those kinds of claims usually don't even have the Holy Spirit. And if they do, their boasting in these false ideas shows that they have displaced the centrality of the Bible in their lives, which indicates spiritual immaturity. So friends, maturity is ultimately a matter of our comprehension of God's Word. So this is yet another area of life in which you get out of it what you put into it. If you labor in the Word, you will mature. If you don't, you won't. It's as simple as that. Now, what should we take from this? Well, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, then you are not spiritually mature because you are not spiritual. You don't have the Holy Spirit, you are spiritually dead, and you're heading for eternal judgment. And what you need to do is repentantly believe in Jesus. You need to turn away from your life of sin, believing that Jesus is God and man, that he has died for your sins, that he has risen from the dead. Follow him, and you will be made alive in Christ. That's your only hope, because God's judgment is coming on this world. But if you're here today and you've only been a believer for a short while... It's okay for you to be spiritually immature. You're just getting started. And at the beginning, everybody's a spiritual infant and needs to learn the basics of the gospel. And if that's you, I want to tell you we're thankful you're at church. We encourage you to study your Bible and be here regularly. Find friends in the church to pray with and read the Bible with so that you will become firmly grounded in the basics. But... If you have been claiming Christ for some time, friend, you ought not be a spiritual baby anymore. You shouldn't need reinstruction in the basics again. You should know who God is, who Jesus is, why he came, and how we should respond to him. You should be able to tell that to other people. You should have a basic understanding of the Christian life, that we should pray, that we should be at church with regularity. The things of God should be of central importance to our lives. And there should be an increasing commitment to these things as time passes. Not a decreasing commitment. An increasing commitment to serving your brothers and sisters and learning the truths of God. Your life should look more mature than it did five years ago. And for many who are here, I want to be clear that the elders see progress and we are encouraged and thankful. We do see an increasing commitment to the truth and in service and involvement in the life of the community among a number of our members, and, and praise God for that. But frankly, for some of the people here, we've seen you for two, four, eight years, and things in your life don't seem any more mature than they were when you first started coming. Frankly, some of you aren't as firmly rooted in basic matters as you should be. We shouldn't be relitigating basic doctrines again and again and again. Frankly, some of you don't seem to get the importance of just showing up with regularity and serving and being involved in the church's community life, which are basic concepts. Your elders shouldn't have to prod you about these things. And this is concerning to us because we love you. 
but because we love you, we have to say this. When our author saw a lack of maturity in the readers that he loved, he was concerned. And for some of you, your elders are concerned too. Because friends, life is marked by growth. Babies drink milk for a while, and eventually they graduate to solid food. Believers should only be spiritual babies for a while, and naturally they should mature. And where there is no maturing, where growth is stunted, that's not normal. That's a place of danger, because it leaves you vulnerable. Because if maturity means you can reliably distinguish between good and evil, then immaturity means you are vulnerable to being misled by evil. You might be drawn away by the deceitfulness of sin, which is what happened to the people in this book. Their laziness led them to immaturity, and when they encountered persecution, they thought, oh, we should cut and run. We should desert Jesus. They wouldn't have thought like that if they were skilled in the Word. It was their immaturity that left them exposed to the danger. And friend, if you don't want to wind up adrift, heading for apostasy like the Hebrews were, you've got to move beyond immaturity. And that's our second point in which we see the solution to this problem. Friends, we must grow up. Now, we've said that growing up means immersing ourselves in God's Word. You say, okay, well, what does that look like? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Foundational truths are the most important truths that exist. The gospel is the most important truth in Christianity. And you can learn it in five minutes, your first time at church. And that is a truth that we must each understand. But friends, there is a time when we need to step beyond the basics and learn some deeper matters. Now, I've known people in the past that have resisted that kind of instruction because there is a strand within evangelicalism that is suspicious about learning theology, which likes to quote 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffs up as though Paul thought spiritual infancy and ignorance were virtuous. They're not. And the knowledge that puffs up in 1 Corinthians 8 is knowledge disconnected from practice in life. But what Paul tells us is that we must grow in knowledge so that we will grow in Christ-likeness. So we must progress beyond the basics. Now we've got to be careful when we say this. Because we read in 2 John verse 9, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Not everything that claims to be advanced is. There were false teachers in John's day who had a slogan, let us go on ahead. They claimed that they had a doctrine that was more advanced than the gospel. But the truths that they were pushing weren't actually advanced, they were false. And John says, don't leave the gospel to chase false doctrine. No, remain in the true gospel, because that's the only way to be connected to the Father and the Son. And so, friend, if someone comes to you and says, oh, I've got an advanced doctrine for you, and the content of that is contrary to what the Bible says about God and Christ and sin and salvation, don't pursue that. That's not what our author is talking about here. Don't leave the gospel to chase heresy. That's not maturity. That's apostasy. Now, what our author means when he says that we must leave the elementary doctrine of Christ is not that we should move away from the gospel horizontally, chasing something else. No, the idea is that we must build upward vertically. 
Not that we should move outward, but upward. So that we remain rooted and grounded in the gospel and yet learn more truths that flow from it. But the original readers didn't want to move upward. They were only interested in foundational spiritual realities. They didn't want to build on that foundation. They just kept wanting to lay that foundation again and again. And what was that foundation? He calls it a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So it takes an action of God. It takes the willingness of God to grow us, and yet we are responsible to grow. Now, let's look at this list of six items. This is apparently a summary of what the original readers were hearing in their church. What our author calls in verse 1 the elementary doctrine of Christ. So these are Christian doctrines. But what don't we find on this list? Anything about Jesus, who he is, his deity or humanity, what he has done, his death, the resurrection. So this is a list of foundational doctrines related to Christianity, but which lack the most uniquely and distinctly Christian feature, Christ himself. Now this explains why the Hebrews church is in the shape it's in. Because they found value in steering away from the distinctly Christian aspects of theology. Oh, they might have talked about Jesus occasionally, but their emphasis was on these six matters, which were not only related to Christianity, but which also appear within Judaism. And that was probably the idea. They were probably trying to be a church that would seem inoffensive and safe to unbelievers in the Jewish community. Oh, we believe basically the same things you do. We're not like those crazy evangelicals down the street on and on about Jesus all the time. No, no, no. You'll find this a very pleasant place for you. They were deliberately downplaying the demanding truths of the Christian faith, just like many churches today do. Imagining that blending into the world is going to win the lost when all it winds up doing is obscuring the saving power of the gospel. And that's what happened in the Hebrews church. Its congregants started finding little value in claiming the name of Christ and started thinking that moving back into Judaism is okay. And if you challenged them about this move, they would probably tell you, hey, going back into Judaism doesn't mean I'm abandoning my faith. I still believe the same things you do. And they'd point to these six things. Because the core of their instruction had been stripped of everything that meaningfully distinguished Christianity from Judaism. Now, what are these six truths? Repentance from dead works. That is, repentance from sins that lead to death. Faith in God. Washings, which to the Jews would sound like ceremonial washings of purification, and to the Christians would sound like baptism. The laying on of hands, which to the Jews would sound like the ordination of priests, and to Christians would sound like something we do in prayer. Resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. Now make no mistake, all these doctrines are true and important, but they are not enough by themselves to lead someone to spiritual maturity. The readers need more. They're infantile in their understanding, particularly about Christ. And our author's not content to leave them there. 
And so in this book, this is why he's so powerfully setting forth the doctrine of Christ. That's what they need to hear to make them grow up. And now he forces them to grow up more by presenting them with some challenging doctrine, forcing them to grapple with it, to deepen their understanding and extend their faith. I think there are two applications. First, friends, we must not allow ourselves to become so enamored with one point of doctrine that we exclude all other truth. The Hebrews had some good, important doctrines on this list, but they were not mature because they kept revisiting old, familiar ground. In the same way, I fear that perhaps we have allowed ourselves to sink into a comfortable, familiar pattern in our studies. How many Christians today have really been exposed only to sections of John's Gospel, or a few letters of Paul, or some of the Psalms? Now, those are all true and wonderful sections of the Bible, but God has given us His entire Word. We must give ourselves a diverse diet for study so that we hear all that God wants to say to us and not only just cover the same small section endlessly. In the same way, many Christians today only seem interested in studying prophecy. And to be sure, prophecy is an important part of God's Word. But coming up with a comprehensive understanding of the end times is not going to make you spiritually mature. If that's all you want to get out of Christianity in the end, I understand the future. Friend, you've missed the point. God is saving a people for his own possession, who he is conforming to the image of Christ by growing us in holiness and love. Don't let yourself get sidetracked by one bit of truth so that you miss the forest for the trees. Second, Understand why we have set this church up the way we have. Why we preach Christ and his gospel all the time. Why the scripture is central to what we do. Why we try to preach all the books of the Bible. Not just the easy ones, but the hard ones too. I think after Hebrews, we've got the Song of Solomon coming up next. Why we don't just preach 20-minute sermons. But why we give detail and background. Why we labor not just in telling you what to do, but by showing you what the text means. Because we want to teach you how to read the Bible for yourself in a more skillful way. Because our job is to help you mature. And that means we shouldn't just be serving up the retread of the bottle of milk you got last week. We grow by encountering God's Word and by encountering challenging sections of God's Word. Which will force us to think about these things and deepen our understanding. That's how our, our author helped his readers and that's how we want to help you too. And now... We have a chance to encounter one such really difficult passage as we come to our third point, which is a blistering warning. Why must the readers of this book mature? Why can they not be left in immaturity? Because immaturity has made them vulnerable to apostasy. And now our author shows just how dangerous apostasy is. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. These are astonishing words because they tell us that it is possible to commit a particular sin from which you will never be able to repent, which puts you beyond all forgiveness or hope 
where all that remains is only a certain prospect of damnation. That is a terrible truth, is it not? And to make sure that we've understood this right, our author reiterates his point later in Hebrews 12, verse 16. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Again, there is a position where repentance becomes impossible. Now, this is a startling truth that we may not be familiar with and which our theology may struggle to understand, but it is what this passage says. So we need to listen to this passage carefully so that we understand this warning and take pains to avoid this miserable end. What is this sin that puts someone beyond hope? Verses 4 through 6 explain by describing first a set of preconditions that must apply to the person who commits this sin. Second, the sin itself. And third, the reason why this sin puts someone beyond the possibility of repentance. Let's start by looking at the sin itself. The sin which triggers this terrible judgment is falling away. It is apostasy, the repudiation of the faith, either doctrinally or morally. But, and this is very important, this passage tells us that not every apostasy is unforgivable. Not every apostasy puts someone beyond the possibility of repentance. No, it's only the apostasy of someone who is characterized by the five preconditions found in verses 4 and 5. That's when someone winds up in this awful position beyond hope. So let's now consider these preconditions. The apostate must have been previously enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, what does this mean? Well, when you first read this list, it sure sounds like this is talking about a true believer who has fallen away and lost his salvation. And that view is strengthened if you do the word study. Because this term enlightenment appears elsewhere in Hebrews and in the New Testament, and it often speaks of conversion. And the expression shared in the Holy Spirit certainly sounds like what happens to a believer. Uh, the word translated shared appears elsewhere in Hebrews and speaks of a full participation in something. And of course, participating in the Holy Spirit is the common experience of believers. The other items in this list are governed by the verb tasted, which elsewhere in Hebrews speaks of an immersive experience. So Hebrews 2.9 tells us Jesus tasted death. He had the full experience. And what is fully experienced according to these verses? The heavenly gift. The word heavenly in Hebrews often talks about the glory that is to come for believers. So there's been a foretaste of the glory to come. And what else has been experienced? The goodness of God's word. The person is aware of the value and reality and truth of the scriptures and the gospel. And they've experienced the powers of the age to come. They have had an undeniable experience of the reality of God and his power. So these five expressions are each strong statements, and together they might at first seem to describe a real believer who once had a saving experience with the things of God. And this is why some people have pointed to this passage and said, this is proof that true believers can lose their salvation. Now, if we only had this list, 
and did not have the rest of this book or the rest of the New Testament, maybe you could defend that position. But I don't think that this is teaching that true believers can lose their salvation because that would put this passage in contradiction with the rest of the New Testament, which teaches eternal security very clearly. John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 10.27, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Paul says in Romans 8, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal security is the consistent teaching of the New Testament, and it is the teaching of the rest of this book. Hebrews 5.9, right before this passage, says Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. It wouldn't be very eternal if he could just cast it away. Likewise, Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We are secured by Jesus' eternal priesthood, his ongoing intercession for us. So it wouldn't make much sense for this passage, right between these two great declarations of the eternality of our salvation, to deny that same truth. No, eternal security is taught in this book. So we have a tension here. This passage sounds like it's describing true believers who fall away and forfeit their salvation, but that seems an impossible conclusion when we consider the rest of Hebrews and the New Testament. Now, people have worked this tension out differently. Some try to argue that, well, eternal security is true, but there's one exception. True believers who commit apostasy are lost. To which I would say if there's an exception to the doctrine of eternal security, it wasn't very eternally secure. You've contradicted all those passages that say that it is. Others claim that this warning is strictly hypothetical and that it describes a practically impossible situation. Well, if a true believer fell away, he would be forever lost, but because he can't fall away, that will never happen. But such a reading would gut this section because this passage isn't much of a warning if the situation it describes can never happen. Others try to resolve this tension by saying the judgment described here is only temporal. So a believer might commit this sin and he will be judged in this life, but he will be eternally secure in heaven. But that view is refuted in the following verses. Now, I think all of the approaches that argue that verses 4 and 5 describe a real believer ultimately fail to convince. And so, in the end, I think we must conclude, despite the strength of the language in verses 4 and 5, that the person who commits the sin described here merely seems to be a believer, but has not truly been saved. And I think we see this clearly in the next two verses. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, here's an illustration of the warning. And our author says it's like rain falls on the land, which is like God's truth being revealed to a person. And when that happens, there are just two possible outcomes. Option one. 
The land receives the rain, produces a useful crop, and God blesses it. That speaks of salvation. A person hears God's truth, responds with repentant faith, bears good fruit, and receives eternal blessedness. Or, outcome two. The land receives the rain, produces thorns and thistles, and proves to be worthless. And what happens? Well, at this point, the illustration falls away, and our author tells us plainly what he's talking about. The person in outcome two is about to be cursed, and their end is to be burned, which describes hell. And that's clear when you read the other warning passages in Hebrews, like the one in Hebrews 10. That speaks of a fury of fire that consumes God's adversaries. But notice what is not said here. There is not a third outcome, a third piece of land, which initially bore good fruit and then stopped bearing good fruit and started bearing thorns and thistles. There is no outcome here where we have land that changes its character. No sense that this is describing someone who used to be saved and now has lost their salvation. No. Now this illustration shows us in the end there are just Two responses to God's word, a fruitful response that leads to blessing and a worthless response that leads to damnation. And in the end, what reveals which response someone has truly had to God's word? The passage of time and the fruit which is born. And so someone who has experienced the reality of God's word, who bears the fruit of enduring perseverance, that is someone who has truly experienced salvation. For Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. But someone who experienced the reality of God's word, and whose life then bears the miserable fruit of apostasy, that is someone who never experienced salvation. And friends, that is said very clearly elsewhere in the scripture. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not of us. Apostasy shows that someone was never saved to begin with. But you might ask, well, why then in the is the language in verses 4 and 5 so strong? Why does this sound like it describes a believer? Because our author wants his readers to examine themselves, to consider their situation. They were claiming to be believers. And many of them had been around the faith for some time. And our author wants them to know that it is possible for someone to get very, very close to the truth. To have an experience of the reality of the things of God. To have a profound awareness that God is real and that Jesus is alive and that the scriptures are true. For a time they may even seem like a real believer and yet they ultimately prove not to be a real believer. And friends, we see examples of this sort of false faith in the New Testament. In John 2, Jesus was in Jerusalem. And it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He himself knew what was in man. Here are people who believe in Jesus' name. They must have had real faith, right? Well, no. And we know that because it says Jesus knew what was in them and he didn't trust them. They had something that looked like belief, but it wasn't real belief. Acts 8.13 tells us Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized. In Acts, that usually means someone had real faith. 
But Simon didn't. And we know that because just a few verses later, Peter says to him, you and your money are going to hell. Simon had something that looked like faith, but it wasn't real faith. Or think about the example in Hebrews 3 and 4, the Exodus generation. They experienced God's reality. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea part. God led them personally. At night, they saw the fire of God burning in the tabernacle. And in day, they followed the pillar of cloud and fire. And at times, it seemed like they had faith. They obeyed the Passover. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They got the whole way to the border of the Promised Land. But what happened? When they got there, they rejected it. They preferred slavery in Egypt to salvation in the Promised Land. And they were condemned to wander the wilderness until they all died off. And why? Because Jude 5 says, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Because despite all their knowledge of the reality of God and their awareness of His power, they rejected Him in the end, which showed they never really knew Him in a saving way. And God reckoned them as unbelievers and destroyed them. That's what our passage warns against. Something that looks like belief, something that has tasted something of the reality of God, which shows that it is not ultimately belief because it falls away. But the warning here is not merely that true faith perseveres. It goes beyond that. Because this says, if you get so close to the truth and spend so much time in church and in God's Word and around God's people, you may begin to apprehend the reality of the things of God even if you're not converted. You see lives changed. You see prayers answered. You know there's power in the Scriptures. And friends, if you get to that point, you need to understand that enlightenment in any degree comes from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural man cannot apprehend the things of of God because they are spiritual. The Spirit must enlighten our darkened minds and show us the truth about Jesus. And if the Spirit gives us a real degree of that kind of clarity and enlightenment, if He convicts us of our sin and shows us the reality of Christ, and we respond not by bending the knee to Jesus, but by willfully and deliberately rejecting Jesus in favor of our sin, then, friend, what hope can remain for us? How do you come back from that? Especially when you consider John 14, 6, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's only one way of salvation. But if you knowingly, willfully, decisively reject that one and only means of salvation, what hope can remain? All that awareness and knowledge of the things of God has only served to make you unforgivably culpable. And if with this enlightenment you spurn God's gracious offer of salvation, there's no second chance. There's no way back. Why? Well, that's the last thing we see here. The reason why this sin puts someone beyond the possibility of repentance. They're crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. If you have an actual awareness of the reality of the gospel, and you then say, I reject Jesus, my sin is good and Jesus is bad, you're doing what the Pharisees did. They knew the Scriptures. They saw Jesus' miracles. On some level, they knew He was the Messiah, and yet they denied it. 
They tried to explain it away. Oh, he's satanic. And what did Jesus say? It's an unpardonable sin. Because after your eyes are open to the truth, if you then reject God's good saving work in Jesus as evil and determine that your sin is good, you have foreclosed the only mechanism that exists for God to save you, which was responding to the Spirit's enlightening work with repentant faith. If the door is opened, if you have clarity and then use that clarity to slam the door shut, it won't open again. And that's what the Pharisees did. They put Jesus on the cross and they reviled him as he died and exposed him to public scorn. And friends, if we fall away after having a personal knowledge of the reality of the gospel, this passage says we've done the same thing. We have committed the sin of the Pharisees. We have put Jesus on the cross in our own lives all over again. And we have exposed him to scorn. Our own scorn and the scorn of the watching world that loves to chuckle as one more person that used to profess Jesus falls away. And friends, this passage tells us that from that position, there's no way back. There's no second chance. How should we respond to this? I know this is very sobering for many of us. But first, I think we should take heart that although there are many people who fall away today, most apostasy is not the sin described here. The college kid who falls away often years later reappears at church. Because when he fell away, he didn't really have a personal awareness that these things were true. His profession of faith was a response to the expectations of friends and family. And years later, after he has kids and after he sees the evils of the world, he returns and then is genuinely converted in his 20s or 30s. That kind of thing happens all the time. Clearly, that kind of apostasy is not what's described here. The apostasy described here is preceded by a true personal knowledge of the reality of the gospel in a serious way. But I've got to tell you, I'm more worried about other cases. I personally know a man who was in the ministry for decades, who spent much time in the Word, who ultimately left the faith and his family to go live as a homosexual. He had a lot of knowledge. I worry about him. And yet I think of Peter, who was the first of the disciples to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, because God revealed it to him. And yet in a night of cowardice, he denied Jesus three times, but he was renewed to repentance. Not every apostasy is this unpardonable apostasy. And God's grace in other cases should encourage us. And friends, we need to remember that God has not allowed us to infallibly recognize when this sin has been committed. And so we should hold out hope for our loved ones who have fallen away from the faith. Don't let this passage discourage you from trying to reach them because they may not and probably were not at the point described in this passage when they fell away. Please continue to urge them to repent and believe the gospel because they may yet be saved. James 5 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Likewise, if you are concerned that you may have committed this sin previously, I would say that concern is probably good evidence that you haven't committed this sin. But I would say to you, draw near to Jesus, cast yourself on his mercy because he is a gracious Savior. At the same time, friends, this passage should make us tremble. Because if you've been around Christianity for a long time, 
If in your heart you know it's true, you know Jesus is alive, you know all this is real, that's great. But the test of real saving faith is not ultimately personal experience, it's perseverance to the end. So don't let your awareness of the truth put you into a place of overconfidence. Don't spiritually coast. Because coasting leads to drifting, and drifting leads to apostasy. And apostasy happens to people that we would never think it would happen to. It could happen to me or you. God forbid. And if it happens to us, after all the knowledge we've had, there may not be a way back. So friends, don't fall away. Don't mess around with sin, which is terribly deceitful. Because if we chase some sin today that we say, it's insignificant, that may put us on a path that will harden our hearts and gradually lead us away, which someday may expose that our profession of faith was false, which may someday put us in the awful place described in this passage beyond hope. Friend, I, I beg you, stay near Jesus and don't chase things that would lead you away from him. If God has graciously allowed you to experience the reality of the gospel, respond with repentant belief in Jesus and stay with Jesus for the rest of your life because he is the only place of safety. So this warning is terrible. It's real. May we not fall into the miserable state that it describes. We conclude now with our brief final point, which is an encouragement. Our author has said some hard things, but now he shows some grace. Look at verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Even though our author has said these hard things, he doesn't think his audience has committed this unpardonable sin. He sees they're in danger, but he doesn't think they're there yet. He still thinks they're saved. And he tells them why he has this optimism. Because in the past, they've been characterized by good works, by loving one another and serving one another. And that was still true, even in the midst of their spiritual drift. Their lives evidence the sort of good works that indicate salvation, the real gospel fruit. And our author is saying, God is no man's debtor. He remembers all that you've done for him, not because works earn God's salvation, but true salvation is, is characterized by these kinds of works. So there are some good signs of life among these people. And friends, that's a good reminder for us. In the end, God doesn't just want you to delve deep into doctrinal truths. No true comprehension of doctrine. True conversion is evidenced by loving one another and serving one another and being involved in the community life of the church. And today as we sit here consider, considering our own maturity, examining whether we really belong to Jesus, we should ask ourselves if this is true of us. And friends, for some of us it is. I think of the service that was done for Neil when he got sick. Or those who are caring for Virginia. Friends, those works are evidences of salvation. And God is not unjust. He rewards those who serve his people. But maybe today as you sit here and reflect, you know that your life does not show any love for the saints. You don't serve other people. You're not meaningfully involved in the community of the church. Friend, even the immature Hebrews were doing these things. So what is going on with you spiritually? Do you belong to Jesus? Does your life show it? But ultimately our author encourages his readers because of their good works. All is not lost. There are signs of life. So he ends with this in verse 11. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What's the point of a passage like this? It's not to ruin your day. It's to wake us up. That we would stop being sluggish and lazy. That we would be summoned to maturity. That we would get serious about our spiritual lives. That we would constantly train by immersing ourselves in God's word. That we would learn to distinguish between good and evil. That we would persevere in the faith until the end. That we would see that apostasy is terrible and evil and we must not fall into it. Friends, this passage wants us to develop a zeal for the things of God. That we would not squeeze the things of God into the margins of our already busy lives, attending to them only when they're convenient, but that the things of God would take first priority and everything else would be arranged around them. Because it's when we have a real earnestness about the things of God that we will have a full assurance of our hope. And as we stop being dull of hearing and start being attentive, as we stop drifting and draw near to Jesus, as we move beyond the basics into maturity, we won't be like the lazy Hebrews who put themselves into this terrible position. Instead, we will be like the great examples of the faith that we see in our Bibles. We'll be like Jesus himself, who patiently endured much hardship, who maintained his faith, who won the victory and inherited the promises. And friends, if we persevere in the faith to the end, we will too. For Hebrews 10 says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls.